Hello, I'm Alec, and this is Scandal 101. I went to my first dinner murder mystery party this past week, and it was so fun, and not to brag, but definitely bragging, I guessed the killer right. There were six people, and the person was poisoned, and we had to go around and ask people questions, and we could listen to their story and listen to other people ask questions. It was super fun. I used my true crime podcast obsession to help me kind of narrow it down a little bit so that was super fun and we are in final season baby so (sighs) yes busy time thanks for tuning in i hope you're doing well i hope your day is good if you're listening in the daytime and if you're not happy night (laughs) time In terms of scandals that I've seen in the news recently, this one I saw yesterday. It comes from Oklahoma. Whoop whoop, party party. It is the assistant district attorney named Daniel Giraldi apparently was trading legal help for sexual favors. Let me tell you, I haven't taken my ethics class in law not an expert in terms of legal ethics and things that are okay and not okay to do in the field of law, but I can take a stab at it and say that trading legal advice for sexual favors probably isn't the best thing to do and probably isn't the most ethical thing to do. (laughs) So we will see what comes of that. Um, In the article, it said that he showed up with two FBI agents. They were there to get his phone out of his office. If it's true and things happen, it could show that there was a lot of corruption in that office. So that will be interesting to see what comes of that. Alrighty, so the sources I used for this episode, um, I used quite a lot. I used a couple of Wikipedia pages, a couple of CBC articles, one of them titled Who Was Neil Stonechild, one of them titled Neil Stonechild A Timeline, and then the other one titled Starlight Tours. I used a government report by T. Anderson that came out in 2019 an MSNBC article by D.N.L. Brown that came out in 2003, an article from All That's Interesting by G. Carlton that came out this year, just a yesterday, or two days ago, April 27th, an article by B. Joseph titled A Brief Timeline of the History of Indigenous Relations in Canada, an episode of Criminal by Phoebe Judge, Uh, episode 138 Starlight Tours, article from grunge.com by M. Manukian, and then I used a CBC News article from 2016 by D. Zagreski. Those are the sources I used for this episode. This episode is dark and horrible, as most of these episodes are, so let's dive into it. This is Freezing Deaths. The Starlight Tours. To get some background on where all of this takes place, the events in this story happen mainly in Saskatoon, um, which is 
where I'm going to talk about. This is reported to have happened in other places in Canada, but I'm going to be focusing on Saskatoon. Saskatoon is a city in Saskatchewan, and Saskatchewan is a province in Canada, and if you're listening in the United States and you just want some reference, Saskatoon is a straight north, like it's straight north above the eastern part of Montana. Saskatoon is the largest city in the province of Saskatchewan, and in the 2016 census, it had almost 280,000 people. The city, it also has a significant population of indigenous people, along with several urban reserves. In 2016, the city had around 31,000 indigenous people living there, which equals out to about 10.7% of the population. Indigenous people unfortunately have a difficult past in Canada, and it's not just a difficult past, many still have a difficult present existence. And it wasn't until recently, and when I say recently, I mean around 2015, that there was a lot of attention brought onto the horrible treatment that had been happening toward Indigenous people, And that's not to say that Indigenous people weren't speaking up, that Indigenous people weren't voicing what was happening. It was that it wasn't really being taught in schools, and still to this day, the voices of Indigenous people in Canada really aren't valued as much as they should be. Speaking historically, land was taken away from Indigenous communities that was quote-unquote transferred to the federal government. The federal government forcefully removed and relocated people. In the 1960s, thousands of indigenous babies and children were taken from their families and put into boarding schools. This treatment has a long history in Canada, but a proclamation in 1763 by King George III is a big moment in history, and this is a big point in history when organized government started treating indigenous groups terribly. I bring that up, and that overview is probably the most basic surface level 10,000 foot overview I could do because as you would guess, things magically haven't gotten better over time. There are still many problems that indigenous people face, inequality, discrimination, housing disparities, and many other disadvantages that come with entrenched hate, institutionalized hate and bias. And those biases, they exist today. Things have gotten better over time, but it's still not where it needs to be. Those biases exist in many people, and oftentimes people with those biases end up getting in power. Unfortunately, many of those people with those beliefs have gotten into positions of power. Specifically, they became police officers. That is some background on our story, and I'm going to start out telling you about this horrible practice with a man named Daryl Knight. Daryl Knight, he is a First Nations man. Um, He was out one night with his uncle at his uncle's apartment. Him and his uncle had gotten into an argument, and Daryl, who had been drinking, started to shout obscenities. They were mad at each other, yelling, family, you know how it gets. Eventually, the police were called. The police, when they arrived, they took Daryl, and Daryl was probably pissed off. He was going to be taken into custody, and in Daryl's mind, he was going to be taken down to the police station, be thrown into the drunk tank for the night, and then the next morning would be released, and he'd be good to go. Unfortunately, that wasn't what was going to happen. The night Daryl was taken in was January 28th. 2000, and instead of going to the jail, they started driving to the outskirts of town and then outside of town. 
They drove him to the middle of nowhere, miles outside of Saskatoon. The officers then stopped the car, and one of them reportedly said, quote, Get the bleep out of here, you bleeping Indian, end quote. They slammed his face on the hood of the trunk, they took off his handcuffs that were on him, and they left him standing outside in the cold. Daryl said to the officers, quote, I'll freeze out here, what's wrong with you guys, end quote. An officer then responded, quote, that's your problem, end quote. The officers drove off into the night as Daryl watched them go. As a reminder, we are in Canada in January at night. Temperatures at this point in the winter in the winter can get down to negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Daryl was wearing a t-shirt, jeans, a jean jacket, and running shoes. Essentially, he was given a death sentence. Daryl recalled, quote, I thought I was dead, but something told me, don't give up, end quote. Daryl started walking. He walked for miles and miles until he got to the Queen Elizabeth Power Station where he banged on the door. It was early in the morning, and luckily a watchman was there, and he let him inside. Daryl was lucky. He just survived a starlight tour. People who often go through this end up dead, or... They don't say anything. Daryl's experience was standard fare for what a starlight tour was. Essentially, what would happen is police would arrest indigenous people, usually men, who were publicly intoxicated or just were intoxicated and the police were called. The police would then drive them way far out of town. The only thing that would be left is a person's dead, frozen body on the outskirts of town. There had been rumors of this going on for a long time. Unfortunately, not a lot of people had spoken up or they hadn't survived. The Starlight Tours had reportedly been happening since 1976. And because people who went through these either ended up dead or were frightened to speak up, no one was able to really gather any evidence of this happening and nothing else could really be done. Daryl, he sat with his story for a little bit, terrified I'm sure, but he eventually came forward a couple of weeks after his horrific ride to tell his story. When Daryl told his story, his story brought attention to the mysterious deaths that had taken place under similar, basically the same circumstances. One of those cases happened in November of 1990, and when this happened, the person's name was Neil Stonechild, who at the time of his death was only 17 years old. Neil was described as charismatic, he was good-looking, and he was popular. But as most teens are, he wasn't a perfect child. He had a history of criminal behavior, he was also dealing with alcoholism, and he did have some past run-ins with the law. His friends said that Neil had been beaten by police at least two other times before the night he disappeared. Even though he was dealing with these things, he had this alcoholism and this past criminal behavior, it seemed like things were going his way in other aspects of his life. He was a good wrestler who had won a title. He was good at art. He had painted a mural. He was constantly in contact with his family as well as social workers that were working with him due to his less than ideal behavior at times. He seemed to be on the up and up. His teachers liked him and just overall he had these 
he had these faults. Everyone has their faults, but he had these things that he was good at. He cared about his family. He was popular, just seemed to be going in the right direction, but was just dealing with some bad behavior. Neil, he had been living in a group home at the time, and a quote from the woman who ran the group home said, quote, When people say Neil was a street kid, that's not so. His mom loved him to death. His brothers and sisters were close with him. Neil's choice of lifestyle was more the fact that he was 17 years old, end quote. And the article referred to her as Lori to protect her identity. And I think Lori's quote sums it up perfectly. It seems like he had people who cared about him. He just was an immature 17-year-old at times, and that had gotten him into trouble, but that in no way means he's a bad person and definitely did not deserve what happened to him. Neil, the night of his disappearance, he was with his friend Jason Roy. Jason said about Neil, quote, He was a kind-hearted person who was genuine and was able to be himself around his friends and his family. Neil loved life, end quote. The night of Neil's vanishing and his death are pretty well accounted for and paint a pretty clear and gruesome picture. Lori, the person who ran the group home, said that Neil had spoken to her for about half an hour that night. He called to tell her that he wasn't going to come home, which wasn't really out of the ordinary for him, but he did say that he would be back the next day, and he also told Lori that he had promised his mom the same thing. So to Lori... The fact that he was calling her and also told her, I told my mom I'll be back tomorrow. That really made it seem like he was definitely going to be back. He had made this promise to his mom. His mom loved him. This He was going to be back the next day. That night, um, Neil and Jason, they had drank quite a lot. They partied and apparently for part of the night had blacked out, which teenagers, sure, do your thing. Later on that night, Neil and Jason had been going up to people's apartment complexes and ringing the buzzer. Essentially, at first, it kind of seems like they were maybe ding-dong ditching people, but with apartment buzzers. But it turned out what they were doing is they were trying to track down Neil's ex-girlfriend, Lucille Horse. However, Lucille was babysitting, so she wasn't going to be able to hang out or do whatever they were wanting to do. And at some point in the night, after the boys had buzzed down enough doors and buzzed enough buzzers, probably pissed some people off, the police were called. The boys, Neil and Jason, they eventually got separated and Jason got away from the situation. Later on in the night, not too far later, a police cruiser came up to Jason and asked if he knew the person in the back of the police car. Jason looked into the back of the police car and saw Neil. Neil was apparently screaming at him, bleeding from a cut on his face. Jason, he was scared that he was going to be arrested, and so Jason lied and said, I don't know the person in the back of your car, and he gave police a fake name. The police, they looked up the fake name, but of course, since it was a fake name, there was no police record, and so police were like, okay, you're free to go. As the police car drove away, Jason apparently heard Neil screaming, quote, help me, they're going to kill me, end quote. Neil had gone missing that night, it was, or early in that morning, November 24th through the 25th, it was 1990, and his body was found on November 29th by two construction workers. He was missing a shoe. Police, they investigated his death, and it was ruled accidental. It was later determined that Neil had tried to walk from a convenience store back to the correctional center where he was trying to go back to. 
he apparently was wanted for escaping the group home, but there's a couple things that don't make sense about that. First of all, why is he missing a shoe if he's found frozen to death? And I know that when people get hypothermia, their body reacts and it makes them feel warm, so there's the undressing before you die, but if that was the case, in theory, he would probably be naked. He wouldn't have just taken off a shoe. And then the other part is the person who ran the group home, Lucille, no, not Lucille, Lori, Lori had said that he called and said that he wasn't going to be home. So why all of a sudden would he be walking home, missing a shoe when he told her, I'm not coming home, like I'll be back tomorrow, but I'm not coming back tonight. So that doesn't make a lot of sense. But it was investigated, and there was nothing. It was ruled accidental. Neil's death, that was back in 1990. So going forward 10 years, January 19th, 2000, Lloyd Dusty Horn, age 53, was found frozen to death in Saskatoon outside of his apartment. The previous night, he had been taken into police custody for, pub for public intoxication. Lloyd's death, it wasn't necessarily a result of a starlight tour, but rather police negating an indigenous person that resulted in his death. January 28th, 2000 is when Daryl Knight was taken out, and luckily he survived. January 29th, 2000, one night after Daryl was taken on his Starlight tour, Rodney Nystis, age 25, was found frozen to death without a shirt. He was in a similar area as Daryl was the day before, in an industrial area near the power station that Daryl luckily made it to, but Rodney, he, he didn't make it. On February 3rd, 2000, Lawrence Wagner, age 30, was last seen alive banging on a relative's door on January 30th. He was found frozen to death wearing a t-shirt, jeans, and socks. He was found in the same industrial area, the one where Daryl made it to the power station, and the one where Rodney was found. February 4th is where Daryl comes forward to tell his story, and after telling his story, there is a huge outcry by the indigenous population and by other people because police doing this, essentially giving indigenous people, usually indigenous men, these death sentences is, is horrible. An investigation is ordered after Daryl does so. About a week later, on February 10th, the officers who picked Daryl up, officers Dan Hatchin and Ken Munson, were suspended with pay after they admitted to picking him up and driving him to the outskirts of town. I would just like to emphasize that they were suspended with pay after admitting to doing that. Great. Eventually, the RCMP takes over the investigation, but at that point, they don't look back into Neil's death because they said they were too busy. Oh, yeah, you know, you know how you're too busy to look into, mm, I don't know, a police department's death sentence of indigenous people. So basically, you're just too busy to look into departmental discrimination, departmental practices that are not part of the actual police code that are illegal. Yeah, I get it. You're too busy. Don't worry about it. Super cool. In March, the two officers were then suspended without pay, 
But this makes everyone angry because other officers think that, um, these officers should still be paid during the investigation, while members of the indigenous community, they think that the officers should be fired. I'm definitely with the indigenous groups on this one. They definitely should be fired, especially since they admitted to it. But they were just like, like, I understand police officers under investigation, like that's their job, that's their livelihood. But they admitted to doing it. So why are why are they still being paid? And why? 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 <laughs> My favorite word for this podcast. Why? More and more complaints keep coming in. More information is coming to light. Not only regarding these two specific officers, but the whole Starlight Tour information as well. And eventually the officers are charged with unlawful confinement and assault and they are eventually found guilty of just unlawful confinement. They were given a sentence of eight months, and the maximum that they could have gotten was 10 years, but they got eight months. Awesome. With all this information coming up about other incidents, there is an inquiry called specifically to look at the death of Neil Stonechild. In 2003, the then Saskatoon police chief named Russell Sabot said, quote, the Starlight Tours, they happened more than once, and we fully admit that, and in fact, on behalf of the police department, I want to apologize. It's quite conceivable that there were other times. I think it's important that we take ownership when we do something wrong and correct the behavior, end quote. And that's definitely a good mindset to have as a police chief, but we're going to see that clearly wasn't felt by everybody. The inquiry into Neil's death, it lasts quite a while, and it reveals a pattern of police abuse, police lies, police cover-up, all of that exciting, horrible stuff. Eventually, a report comes out in 2004, the final report of the inquiry, and it actually had some bite to it, which was good and I think surprised a lot of people. The report, it said, among other things, Hey police, you have been complete garbage, and there was clear evidence that Neil was in police custody custody that night. The police, even though the police chief was open and apologized, throughout the inquiry, police were defensive, and the report said, Hey police, you're trash for doing that, you're clearly in the wrong here. There were eight recommendations at the end of the report, including, quote, better training in race relations and anger management for police officers and a system that would make it easier to file complaints against police officers, end quote. Another recommendation from the report was to add indigenous officers to the police force because if the police force doesn't look like the community, the police force cannot understand what people in the community go through. The experience of a white person is not the same as an indigenous person, is not the same as a black person, is not the same as a Hispanic person. Everyone has different experiences and all professions, but especially professions of power, judges, police, legislators, they all need, in my mind, they need to reflect the community because you can't accurately represent a community if you don't understand what that community goes through on a daily basis. Sure, police departments can build um, community relations, they can have outreach, and that's definitely a step in the right direction, but until you have people in that body of power, whatever it may be, that understands, that has experienced what other people experience, 
you will never truly have an understanding body of power. And I think that's one thing this report realizes, like, what we've been doing is not only horrible, and we've essentially been sentencing people to death unofficially, and of course, the Starlight Tours, it wasn't an official practice of the police department, it wasn't something that all officers did, but it was something that was not just a one-off. It was something that multiple officers had been participating in, multiple indigenous people had died, and uh, yeah. So there were recommendations from this report, and it was all fixed, right? You know, this report, it fixed everything. Everyone was magically better. Everyone was magically on board. No, that's not how it works, and you know that. And this was really shown in 2016 when a university student named Addison Herman uncovered that someone from inside the Saskatoon Police Department had been deleting the Starlight Tour section from the department's Wikipedia page. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna say it again so it can sink in. Someone from inside the Saskatoon Police Department was going onto Wikipedia looking up the Saskatoon Police Department's page and deleting the section about the Starlight Tours to essentially try to erase the history that had been done by their police department. And this was in 2016. This was 12 years after the report came out. This was 12 years after these recommendations had been put into place. And 12 years later, in 2016, only six years ago, Someone from inside the police department was deleting that section of the Wikipedia page. Addison Herman, the student that had uncovered it, he had been doing a research project for history class and was looking into the history of the Saskatoon Police Department. Quote, I noticed there was no section on the Starlight Tours, so I looked in the article history and there was an IP address that took it off the page. I looked at the info for the registration on the IP address, and that IP, I and that IP address pretty much is registered to the Saskatoon Police Service, which means that a computer from their office went on Wikipedia and took it off. End quote. After Addison discovered this, the police, they investigated the claim, and Allison Edwards, the Saskatoon police spokeswoman, said, quote, They were able to identify one of the visits to the Wikipedia site in which something, some of the information was either added or taken away. I don't know, it's impossible to know for sure. End quote. And she also said that, well, our servers are wiped every 30 days, so we can tell that it came from the computer but we can't necessarily tell which computer it came from, so therefore we can't track down the specific officer. But Addison, the student, he basically called BS on that. He said it's pretty easy to trace who made the changes, and not only that, but the information about the changes is clearly posted on Wikipedia, and Allison, this police spokesperson, she also said, quote, we will never know for sure what computer, who signed into that, and at any time, up to 200 people would be utilizing the same server, end quote. Addison also said that 2016 wasn't the only time that the section had been deleted and added. Back in 2012 and 2013, the section had been deleted and re-added multiple times. Addison, the university student, said about his discovery that, quote, we need to be honest about our past as a country and move forward. 
And this is just a few steps backward in my opinion. I think the proper thing to do is to be transparent about everything, and I think it's just inappropriate, especially for the office itself, to try and take it off and to try and hide their history. End quote. There are many other examples of people claiming that they had a Starlight tour, and I tend to believe those people. One of them who only wanted to be called Greg to provide uh, to protect his identity, he said that he was a Starlight tour survivor, but he never, compla- he never complained about it. And when he was asked why he didn't make a complaint, he said that, quote, it's police investigating police, end quote. Another survivor of the Starlight Tours named Alexis Young said that before the officers left her in the middle of nowhere, they took her shoes and they took her coat. Another person who survived the Starlight Tours was only 17 at the time. His name was Lyle, and he said that, quote, One cop just turned around and he was talking to me, telling me, You're a tough guy. You think you're fucking tough? And I was like, no, I don't think I'm tough. I'm just going home. I'm just going home to sleep. I thought I was going to get beat up by them. I started to get scared by that time. They pulled over to this driveway and it was like a driveway that went into a field. The passenger cop got out and opened the door and the other cop comes walking around and they get me out of the car. The younger cop kind of shook me by my jacket and then they told me, you have 20 seconds. And I was like, 20 seconds for what? And they said, you see that field? run. Run into that field. I got really scared at that time. I didn't ask no questions. I just started running. I would have rather taken a beating than to get dropped out there. But I made it home. At least when you get a beating, and I've had lots in my life, and I can take a beating and keep on ticking, and I can get up and walk away from it. Better to be swollen and alive than stiff and dead. End quote. While there were changes that were recommended to the report and they were all implemented into the Saskatoon Police Department, such as hiring more Indigenous officers, putting cameras and GPS trackers into all of the cars. The lives of Indigenous people in Canada are still difficult. Compared to a white person in Canada, an Indigenous person is, quote, 10 times more likely to have been shot and killed by a police officer in Canada, end quote. Not only are they more likely to be Um, victims of police violence, but police ignore Indigenous people's reports of crime in a horrific and staggering amount. There are a large amount of missing and dead Indigenous girls and women in Canada that their cases are not getting the attention that they deserve. In the end, unfortunately, we will never have an exact number for how many people died because of the Starlight Tours. Since it was an unofficial police practice, there was no physical evidence. Officers, of course, are never going to confess that they did this. People who did survive, they might be scared to speak up. We will never know truly how many Starlight Tours occurred, but what we do know is that no officers involved in the Starlight Tours were ever charged for causing the deaths. And with that, that concludes Freezing Deaths, The Starlight Tours. This is so horrible. I just don't, I have so much I want to say, but it would be me repeating myself of how disgusted I am by learning about this. It's amazing that Daryl Knight spoke up because I'm sure that took a lot of courage to speak out against the police department that was clearly discriminating 
And of course, the voices of the indigenous community and other indigenous people helped bring this to light. Fortunately, things have been getting better, but things are not getting better fast enough. Things are still not equal, and I think that is the case for minority groups in every country. Of course, in America, if you are a person of color, you are subject to discrimination, harassment, unequal treatment. In Canada, it's the same situation, and it exists everywhere. It needs to be talked about more because... Things like this happen all the time, everywhere, and it, yeah. The last thing I'll say about it on this episode is the one quote from Greg, the person who wanted to stay anonymous. He said that it's police investigating police, and I think that's a good summary as to why there needs to be independent reviews of departments, especially with complaints. And I think that was another one of the recommendations that came out of that inquiry. If you have, if you're mistreated by police, and then the person or the body that you have to go send a complaint to is that same police body, where they're going to be investigating one of their own officers, of course there's going to be a lack of trust and a lack of confidence in the fact or in their ability to be objective and to come to the right conclusion. Who are they going to trust? Are they going to trust a minority who has faced discrimination their entire life and the officers themselves may have negative feelings towards this minority? Or are they going to believe their friend on the force? I think it's pretty clear who's going to be believed. It seems like more and more stories like this are coming out in the United States and everywhere else. And it seems like there's a lot of pressure being put on police departments and officers to have accountability for actions that happen. And that's definitely a step in the right direction. But we're not there yet. There's a lot of work to do. And how the work gets done and how the work gets attention is speaking up if something wrong happens. Alrighty, on that positive note, I am going to read a personal scandal. This one is about a landlord trying to take advantage of someone. This one, this person they sent in, I caught my landlord listing my same unit model and size for about $150 less than they told me was the absolute minimum. When I sent them a screenshot of the listing, they came down to a $200 increase. Still stings, but it's better than $300 increase. First, thanks for sending that in, and it also sucks that your landlord was trying to screw you over, and they didn't even... It's good that they were bad about screwing you over because... They were so dumb, like, oh, we can only go down this much, and then they publicly list the same unit and model and size for less online it's not that hard to find so i don't know what they were thinking clearly they didn't think things through and they were just hoping you wouldn't be observant enough to notice it so good on you for noticing it good on you for demanding a more fair rent especially by what they were advertising to other people (sighs) and it just sucks that landlords a lot of the time Well, I don't know if all landlords suck, but we definitely hear a lot more about the bad ones than the good ones. And with that, that concludes this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode, even though it was horrible and dark. I'm going to post some photos on social media 
And also, just so you know, there is a photo of Neil Stonechild's body frozen when it was found. I'm not going to post that photo. And it's not like a graphic photo. It's like you can tell it's a body. It's not like up close. You can't see his face or any details like that. And he has like his shirt on or whatever. But that photo is out there. So if you want to go look for it, definitely go ahead. It's not hard to find. I'm not going to post it just because... Yeah, I just don't want to. So, but it is out there if you want to go look it up. Um, but I will post other photos relating to this case. So, social media pages: Instagram at Scandal One Hundred One Podcast, Twitter at Scandal One Hundred One Pod, Facebook search Scandal One Hundred One Podcast. You'll find uh, the page there. The website is Scandal One Hundred One Podcast Podbean You can find the show notes there as well as the show notes in the episode description. And if you want your personal scandal read on the podcast, please send it to scandal101podcast at gmail.com. That is all I've got for you. Thanks so much for tuning in. Episode 50, super exciting, halfway to 100. When I started this podcast, I was like, what if I did 101 episodes and then just like ended it? So then it was like Scandal 101 with 101 episodes. However, I really like doing this, and there are also so many scandals out there that that probably won't happen, but we'll see how I'm feeling around an episode 100. And with that, thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Wish me luck on my finals. I have my first one today, the day that the episode comes out, and that is what I will be doing the day this podcast comes out. So thanks so much for tuning in. This has been episode 50 of Scandal 101.